Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. Emerging markets have always had interesting structural opportunities around demographics, rising wealth and consumption trends. But it hasn't been an easy place to make money, and this is often due to domestic politics. The MSCI Emerging Market Index is down 13% over the last five years, while the MSCI World Index is up more than 30%. So the question is, why should investors consider emerging markets now? And can EM deliver on its growth potential and reward investors? That's what I'll be discussing in this episode with Antipodes Emerging Markets Portfolio Managers, Sunny Bangia and John Stavliotis. We're going to discuss the key opportunities and risks we see across emerging economies and delve into some great companies that you may have never heard of. First, we're going to hear from John. Welcome, John. Hi, Alison. Thanks for having me. You've recently been appointed co-PM of Antipodes Emerging Market Fund alongside Sunny. And as well as covering Greater China, you've been spearheading Antipodes Emerging Markets research efforts beyond China. Emerging markets have always had exciting growth opportunities, but there have been challenges across the region. Why should investors be looking at emerging markets? Well, all all of the unforeseen events that have occurred over the last three years have particularly weighed on emerging markets, leading to some of that poor relative performance that you mentioned at the beginning. The importance of macro, policy outlook and governance have really become clearer than ever, as, as is the requirement to account for these risks in setting the country risk premium. But structural investment opportunity in EM has not changed. We could talk at this for a long time, for hours, right? But I think I'll give you a few clear examples on how we look at it in our portfolio. Gaining, we try to gain exposure to countries that have a demographic dividend, social reform opportunities, um, consumption, modernisation and premiumization, banking, credit penetration. All of these things will, really, will lead to strong development and the benefits will show through a number of ways, but particularly through increasing spending power and economic competitiveness, which itself creates a feedback loop of development. Outside of China, we see the greatest opportunities in India, Indonesia, uh, Mexico and Brazil. And we think these markets will continue to grow faster than they have for the last five years. And what about the setup right now, given the heightened global macro risk? So these countries dealt with COVID without the extreme stimulus that we saw in the US. And it's probably because many of them couldn't or didn't have the funds to be able to do that. But it does mean that we don't have the same high base effect in 2023 and beyond. Also, prior crises have meant that these countries entered this period better equipped and ready to act. So, for example, in LATAM, we saw a very quick and aggressive um, action to manage inflation because clearly that region has had this problem for a long time and is well-versed in how to deal with it. In Asia, past failures have meant that governments understand the importance of managing currency and the level of foreign borrowings to maintain stability in the economy. In fact, during this period of, it's really just been unprecedented global bond declines and volatility, EM sovereign bonds led, for example, by China, Mexico, Indonesia, they've outperformed developed market bonds with far lower volatility. In fact, we're increasingly finding some of the more riskier twin deficit scenarios are actually in developed markets. Mm. So we may, may need to actually revise how, you know, some of these commonly accepted uh, classifications. So sort of looking at the near term, looking forward, a peak in US inflation, US rates, 
um, US dollar appreciation peaking, this will see capital inflows into emerging markets and reduce some of the upward pressure on interest rates, which will support growth in these economies. Okay, so of the markets that you've called out, um, India, Indonesia, Mexico and Brazil, where do you see the most attractive structural opportunities? So in terms of structural opportunities, it's really Indonesia and India. Um, I'll, I'll give you a few points on Indonesia first. So they've been benefiting from structural reform from almost a decade of political stability under Jokowi. Um, you know, the, the country has got a young population. It's been benefiting from reform around labour laws, investment in infrastructure. It's been a big winner of the commodity cycle. Um, its current account has returned to surplus for the first time in 10 years. Uh, and terms of trade has really strengthened on, on the back of these commodity prices. Uh, just to give you a bit of an example, a flavour of this, right, under, under Jakao's leadership, there's been over 2,000 kilometres of roads being built, which is more than double the, the prior 40 years. On top of this, there's been airports, ports, dams, so real evidence of the infrastructure that um, really, really just makes, you know, makes doing business in the country a lot better than it has been in the past. Um, and, and this is evidenced in, if you look at the World Bank, publishes a ranking of ease of doing business. And Indonesia used to be at 120 back in 2012. It's now at 73. Now, yeah, that's still not something to um, be, you know, it, it's not leading the world, but it's in a much better position than where it was in the past. Mm. You know, just to finish off on Indonesia, I'll give you an example of some of the more targeted reform that, you know, could really help GDP per capita and, and productivity in the country. So Indonesia is a leader in nickel reserves. It's got 22% of the world's reserves. This is obviously an important um, resource for, for battery and electric vehicles. Um, the government has been encouraging nickel producers to invest in processing since 2014. We now think that Indonesia could be 50% of the supply of refined nickel for battery grade by 2025, which is a big shift in their positioning. And on top of this, the government is now actively trying to, to move further downstream and create an electric vehicle manufacturing hub. This is very early stages, but it's just an example of some of this targeted reform that could lead to growth. Mm-hmm. And what about India? A bit of a similar situation there as well. The country's also had a long period of political stability under Prime Minister Modi. Yeah, that's right. So... Um, Modi was also elected back in 2014, so almost the exact same time frame as Jokowi. Uh, and his, his uh, you know, um, support has not, um, has not has got no signs of abating. Um, and he's really focused around reform on labour, property, also ease of doing business and seeing good investment in infrastructure. So it's a um, similar sort of um, playbook there. It also has very attractive demographics. Working age population is growing as a percentage of total. So it's a very good structural backdrop. But I'll give you a point here, right? Despite all this, manufacturing only represents 14% of GDP in India. This is well below 27% in China and many other emerging markets that have got similar low-cost labour. It's even just slightly above the US, which is you know, in a very different stage of development, obviously. Um, and, and the government has started offering what they call production-linked incentives, which, along with the other reforms that we've talked about, presents a plan to unlock this structural opportunity in the economy. 
Now, India has historically been relatively expensive, hasn't it, as a market? So how, how do you balance those structural opportunities that you've just taken us through versus you know, price and, and valuations? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Indian stock market has outperformed EM um, even recently, right? As um, the, and the economy, a currency have all held up really well despite the rising oil price, which has historically been a bit of an Achilles heel for India. Uh, and given the reasonably large decline in yield differential to the US. So I think it's worth starting there that the country started this crisis with strong Forex reserves um, and also increased tax collections through this period. This meant that they're able to provide subsidies for food and energy prices without blowing out the fiscal budget. Mm. For that reason, the stock market's outperformed, but valuations aren't cheap. And where we're sitting right now, if oil were to go over $100 again, if FDI flows weakened, or we got yet another unforeseen global event, the situation may not be as attractive. Um, many of the levers have already been pulled and we could see pressure on the rupee, could see inflation and rates, which would be detrimental to investing in the country. So, mm. so you know, n- despite it being a very attractive structural opportunity, um, we, we would, we would, we would, because it's a structural opportunity, we would like to deploy more capital to the country, but we'd need to see a, an attractive margin of safety. Mm. And one such example is our core holding in ICICI Bank, um, which is a quality banking franchise and it's benefited from growth. It benefits from growth in the credit system more broadly. So really to summarize everything we've just chatted about, political stability has been critical in Indonesia and India's development. Uh, and, and it's really allowed both leaders to work towards longer term changes that have significantly improved both countries' economic outlook and competitiveness. Now, can we shift focus to, to Brazil, which has recently held its own presidential elections. So Lula has been successful in, in what was a pretty hotly contested election. Um, now, Lula is undeniably very popular amongst the people, but has a pretty colourful history. So when you take this political backdrop um, in Brazil, combined with large fiscal and current account deficits, how does Brazil stack up relative to Indonesia and India? Sure. I'd summarise it by saying the opportunity in Brazil is more cyclical than structural. Um, The passing of the election reduces political uncertainty. And if Lula does balance the cabinet with more centrist candidates, uh, along with, you know, a realisation that he needs to act act in a more balanced manner, given the very tight margin with which he won the election, we could actually get an attractive balance between reform and spending. And, you know, inflation has rolled over already in Brazil. Um, so in that situation, you, we, you could get rates coming down from the very high levels that they're currently at. The select rate is at sort of 13.5%. It went up from almost 3% in 18 months. So it was a, quite an aggressive move. Mm. Um, and if we did see that, the, the situation... Um, you could see the economy and the currency have quite a favourable outlook Mm. um, after an extended period of weakness. And like Indonesia, it's benefiting from tight energy markets through its exposure to um, oil predominantly um, and commodities. Um, So, yeah, it's it's an attractive cyclical opportunity at this point. Now, John, a conversation on emerging markets wouldn't be complete without discussing geopolitics. 
So the frost between the US and China has showed some signs of thawing at at the recent G20 meeting. But, you know, there is no denying that the relations between the two largest economies in the world still are strained. So what does a shift to a multipolar geopolitical landscape mean for other emerging markets? You know, who, who will the beneficiaries be? Well, Taiwan and South Korea are the most critically important countries to global manufacturing supply chains. TSMC has effectively retained its leading edge chip capacity at home, a strategy referred to as the Silicon Shield. More recently, Western governments have been trying to shift this capacity home, but with much higher cost base, a lack of talent and experience in the manufacturing process, it's going to be difficult. US firms are prioritising reshoring and nearshoring of manufacturing beyond semiconductors, and and this is going to continue to disrupt supply chains. It's a key factor to our investment case in Mexico, Uh, and there'll be other beneficiaries, example, Indonesia, India, Vietnam, that have got low cost bases and um, young populations, etc. The key point I want to leave you with is that emerging countries will not be cut out of supply chains. The cost advantage, established businesses linkages are just too strong to disrupt. There will be some diversification, which is key to managing geopolitical risks, with the focus shifting really from just-in-time inventory management to now being more prepared for the just-in-case. Thanks, John. I mean, that is a great rundown of, of that broader emerging market macro landscape. Now, let's talk stocks. How are you reflecting these views in the Antipodes Emerging Markets portfolio? Can you give us the pitch on three holdings in your preferred markets beyond China? Okay, to the exciting part. So (laughs) let's start with uh, FEMSA. So this is a portfolio of quality businesses that lead their respective markets based in Mexico. So the, the core operating business they have is called OXO, which is the largest convenience store chain in Mexico. Um, although it's just in the convenience store space, it has 10% share of food and beverage sales in the country. Mm. 40% is still your kind of independent mum and pop stores. And it's expanding its footprint aggressively in Mexico, but also trialling some other markets like Brazil. And, you know, if it got Brazil right, that would be a huge upside that's, that we're not sort of factoring in, in mm. our assumptions yet. It also has the largest Coke bottler in the world, Coke Femza, which it owns over 50% and controls. Um, And we think that business is a very nice, stable business that will see a recovery now that Mexico and Brazil are coming out of COVID. Mm. It also has a 15% stake in Heineken Group globally, which it inherited by selling some of its beer assets um, to them about 10 years ago. Mm. So this stock, it has underperformed and really it's because they've had some strategic missteps. They bought a business in Europe, which the market didn't like. Market didn't like the fact they've held on to Heineken rather than investing in some of their productive businesses. But, but we think that's the opportunity. They're holding a strategic review at the moment where they're looking at potentially reinvesting some of these proceeds into, into better growth opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and we expect that in the next sort of six months to come out. If you look at this, just the, the basics, we think this is a very stable um, consumer business that's growing in the low teens, currently trading on 15 times PE. Mm. Similar businesses like this in emerging markets that are growing at or slower rates are trading at much higher multiples. Um, so we think this is a very attractive opportunity right now. Okay. And you're pretty constructive on Indonesia. What do you like in that market? So, so our biggest holding in Indonesia is Bank Mandiri. 
It's one of the largest banks um, in the country. So the banking industry there is relatively, relatively consolidated with the top four having 50% of loans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an attractive market from a banking industry perspective. So household debt to GDP is only 20%. Corporate mm. debt to GDP is only 35 which is much lower than other EMs. Um, and 50% of the country, or adult population, sorry, in the country, still doesn't have a bank account. So we, we think there's a long runway of growth and we, we think loans will grow at over 10% over that, over that period. In the near term, net interest margins should continue to rise. Costs are falling because of a, rationali- a branch rationalisation program that they're putting through. Um, and we think that there's a structurally lower credit cost because of some mixed shift in, in loans that they've put through in the last five years. So again, simply summarising, we see this bank generating an ROE of 18 call it up to 20%, growing loans at low teens, um, 5% dividend yield and priced at 1.8 times book. Given long duration of the growth opportunity here, we think that's a very favourable investment. And you spoke about Brazil. Is there an opportunity you can highlight for us there? Uh, last one I'll talk about is um, Paxaguro. So they're the leading payments, uh, a leading payments company in Brazil. Effectively, what they do is they help small, medium-sized merchants get plugged into the banking system by offering them a payments processing unit, kind of like the Square um, payment um, method in the, in the US. Uh, the, the stock was caught up in the growth bull market about you know, 18 months ago, and investors really didn't re- realise the rate sensitivity of this business. So they charge a fee for real-time cash settlement of card payments, um, and that fee is linked to interest rates. And, and, but they need to fund that, and their funding costs have gone up materially. So basically the spread that they're earning has come down given the Brazilian selling rate has gone up so much. Now, that's now in the numbers. That's been put through in the estimates. Um, the white space opportunity is still significant. Significant, we're seeing strong um, take up of merchants, etc. Um, and despite, despite now these higher rates coming through, we think the stock can still grow earnings by about 20% um, over, the, over the medium term. If rates do normalise in Brazil at some point, there will be a big step up in earnings as that they'll be able to normalise that spread. Importantly, they're strategically trying to manage this funding cost risk by growing their bank that they have and their deposit base, which will structurally lower their cost of funding. Um, they're also cross-selling other banking opportunities to these merchants, which will become an earnings driver. So, you know, looking at earnings growth of 20% without assuming a normalisation in rates and the stock's trading at 10 times PE, um, we think that's an attractive um, investment opportunity in Brazil. Fresh reopening hopes, lifting Chinese stocks on US markets once again. Right now, what we're watching is China, especially when it comes to that sweeping property package. Protests spreading across China, citizens pushing back against the nation's COVID zero policy, some calling on President Xi Jinping to step down. Sunny Benjia joins me for the final part of this episode, in which we'll discuss China, the largest emerging market and a country whose stock market and economy has attracted a lot of attention in recent years. How are you, Sunny? Yeah, good, thanks, Alison. How are you? Good. Now, Sunny, there's been some significant news out of China since we last spoke on this podcast. China's stance around property sector support and COVID policies has meaningfully shifted. 
COVID zero has arguably been the biggest weight on China's economy. Now, with the recent policy announcements, do you see China shifting away from COVID zero towards living with COVID? Yeah, well, we we do think that the shift is happening in the right direction. Um, there has been a material relaxation in China's COVID zero policies and the messaging around those policies over the last fortnight. Also, there has been a greater tolerance for case counts to increase before a citywide lockdown comes into place. PCR testing requirements are being reduced, and the definition of close contact has also been loosened. So, while there has been a push to increase vaccinations, there has been a change around the rhetoric、um, in the severity in the of the virus. What's important. Is that this is all happening while case counts are at very high levels and rising. As we have said in the past, China isn't going to have a big bang reopening like the developed world. But these recent changes are evidence that China is working out how to live with COVID. We will likely see volatility with case counts rising in the short term, and evidence of social discontent with the slow pace of loosening. There will be near-term uncertainties around the transition, but the important point is that China continues to ebb and flow along the path towards normalization. And and it really does seem the next few weeks are critical in terms of the messaging around COVID, and whether lockdowns will continue to be loosened while case counts are elevated and rising, especially with the backdrop of of these protests. Sunny, you mentioned you don't expect the transition to a full reopen to be straightforward, but it was interesting to see a few days ago that Guangzhou reversed its lockdown policies despite case counts remaining at elevated levels,、uh, and it being at the epicenter of this COVID outbreak. Yes, that's right. And you know we have seen a material change in tone in official party communication. With the outgoing vice premier saying that as the virus becomes less severe and more vaccines are rolled out, we are moving to a new stage of managing the pandemic, and you know this is another positive sign relating to reopening. And a topic we discussed last month was that the PBOC, which is China's central bank, has been loosening policy while the rest of the world is tightening. So as lockdowns continue to ease. Do you expect rising money supply to be felt more broadly through the economy? Yes, we we do think that's、um, going to occur, and that's yeah, we're moving in the right direction. Look, it's important to remember that the Chinese government、um, has been very careful to avoid wasteful stimulus that offers a short-term boost but then a long-term hangover. The capital injected into the system to date has targeted infrastructure. Including green initiatives to cushion the contraction in the residential property market. However, this does not fully translate to activity during lockdowns. So, as restrictions are removed, we should see activity rebound with a greater force. Arguably, there is significant pent-up household demand. The hardline reform targeting the internet platforms and the property sector. Has weighed on the economy, especially the private sector and overall animal spirits. So the need for looser policy has grown, and this has become even more urgent as China's export sector has 
has felt the brunt of falling Western demand as the Western economy is now rapidly slow. Property sector reform initiatives, to the extent they were aimed at squeezing out bad actors, could be considered mission accomplished. So the recent moves to, Im- to improve liquidity conditions represent a significant reversal and back to a program growth stance. <clears throat> there has been strong evidence that the regulatory crackdown on the internet sector is largely behind us, with the partly statement shifting towards regular supervision since July. It is also interesting to note that Ant Financial is making progress in its regulatory re- regulatory rectification. This is important because the cancellation of its IPO was the first major marker of the regulatory downcycle that occurred two years ago. <clears throat> then more recently, there, has, there was a release of 21 measures to support the private investment made by the central planning agency known as the National Development and Reform Commission. Can we spend a bit more time on the property sector? Lockdowns and restrictions really compounded the problem in the property sector, didn't they? Now, the central government stepped in a few months ago to support troubled property developers to get completions moving, but recent announcements have expanded the support to the sector. Can you take us through what these announcements mean? The central government started to provide some support a few months ago, but access to capital outside of the top property developers and state-owned developers has considerably impaired. But now the size of the government-backed bond financing program, where the government-guaranteed bond raised by the property developers, has been expanded and is accessible to more developers. Debt that's maturing can be rolled up for a year. Caps on bank lending to the property sector are being removed. Property developers are allowed to access funds from pre-sales and the People's Bank of China is injecting capital directly into several state-owned banks for direct property and infrastructure lending, which is basically the PBOC's version of quantitative easing. Just last week, even more measures have been announced with state-owned banks providing more credit for developers, mortgages, bond investments, and M&A loans. Now, as it remains, the situation is very fluid. The pace and size of support coming from the central bank shows there's a desire to reverse the deterioration that has occurred in the property sector and to do and to ensure the build-up of inventory over the last two years is resolved smoothly. And and Sunny, how meaningful is this additional support? On our analysis, more than one trillion RMB has been injected into the property sector, which is material funding support relative to the debt maturities of the sector over the coming year. Increasing liquidity is obviously positive for completions, given the majority of apartments under construction have been pre-sold, the buyer is on on the hook, bringing the blowout and delivery times back to a normalized level is essential for restoring consumer confidence. Mm. We estimate the buildings under construction were sold as long as four years ago, which should be closer to two and a half to three years in a more healthy market. Time will tell whether these measures translate to increased new sales, 
but mortgage rates have been reduced further to increase demand and the banks have been instructed to increase property loans. Importantly, even with this support, we still expect primary sales in China to drop below trend demand of around 12 million units per annum to work off the excesses from the 14 to 15 million per annum units sold over the past five years. So looking ahead, we expect the housing market to be structurally smaller and the riskiest property developers, developers will ultimately be squeezed out of the system. The goal of the increase in support from a central government is to reduce the risk of property defaults today and by extension reduce the risk of the banking on the banking system and the broader Chinese economy. So are these policies the turning point the market has been waiting for? President Xi's ongoing consolidation of power along with the persistent COVID-0 rhetoric has seen investors largely give up on China, particularly foreign investors. We suspect the de-weighting that has been publicised by a number of US funds combined with the capitulation selling that took place in September and October will likely mark the lows in China, in the Chinese market's relative underperformance. There's a shift in attitude towards finding a way to live with COVID, and there's an important turning point towards China's full reopening, plus a number of additional positive catalysts. For new policy, the Central Economic Work Conference to be held in Beijing next month and the annual session of the People's Congress, China is looking to monitor the key events and promote growth. Foreign, sen- foreign sentiment could improve if the accounting boards approve the um, continued listing of Chinese ADRs on US exchanges, and there are signs that the audit process are moving in the right direction. Given the low base of 2022 and the shift of positive policy setting while the rest of the world is tightening, leaves China in a relatively interesting position moving into 2023 and uniquely less reliant to what it is ha- what is happening in the United States. Thanks, Sunny, and thanks, John, also. So the bottom line is investors should hold the line on China. But that doesn't mean it should be the only place investors look for emerging market exposure. And at Antipodes, we've been complementing our China exposure with some attractively valued opportunities across the EM world, some of which John touched on earlier. While Antipodes Emerging Markets Fund has a dedicated EM research team, the portfolio leverages our broader global industry research platform, including accessing developed market listed companies that generate a meaningful proportion of their revenue and earnings in emerging markets. For any further information on the Antipodes Emerging Markets Fund or Antipodes Market Insights, please head to our website, antipodes.com, or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And remember to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when our final episode for the year goes live in a few weeks. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. 
Individual stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any security.